0: How we doing? Welcome to week two of the semester. Kind of crazy that we are here. Uh, if you don't know me, uh, if we haven't met, my name is Alex Gray. I help co-direct Veritas here. Uh, and we're so glad you guys made it out tonight. It's still pretty cold, but you battled it, and we are glad. Hey, I have uh, had a quote, like, stuck in my head this week. You know when you hear something and it just kind of rattles around in your brain? Like, it keeps popping up. You can't stop thinking about it. So I've had this quote. I heard it uh, probably a week or two ago, and I heard it here on, on Sunday in service. So maybe some of you are here, and maybe you heard it, and maybe you remember it. But it's from a movie called The Usual Suspects, and I have never seen that movie. But the line is, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. So the best con that the devil has ever come up with is convincing us that he's not real. He's not around. His greatest trick is getting us to not really think about him at all. And I just keep thinking about that quote because honestly, for me, at least personally, it kind of rings true. And if I had, I don't know, but if I had to guess, I would think that a, the majority of the people in this room, that that would be true for you guys too. Like we just don't think much about the devil or like spiritual forces for, for that matter at all. Like why would we? It's just kind of confusing. We don't really get it. We don't see them. We don't really feel their presence day in and day out. And maybe, I don't know, maybe we don't even really Believe in them at all. Like, maybe we kind of think it's a bunch of like mumbo jumbo, you know? Like, this is the 21st century. We're crying out loud. Like, do we really believe in all this devil and spiritual forces stuff? If that's us tonight, I get it. I feel that. But this quote, it won't leave my head because I also know that we all feel this sense that something about the world just isn't right. Like something's not quite right. Because every time that we open our phone for news notifications, we we get these notifications of war and destruction, political division, natural disasters. Something, it can't be right. Something's not right. Because some of us in this room, we've had people that we love who have been taken far too soon from sickness or tragedy. Something is not quite right right because a lot of us, we walk around campus day by day with just the feeling of crushing anxiety weighing down on us or a sadness that we can't explain, we can't shake, a loneliness that we don't know what to do with. I think we all feel it. Something is wrong, something seriously wrong with the world that we live in and we can't just chalk it up to or explain it away with things like Global warming, you know, economic disparity or disease, chemical imbalances, social media none of that, none of it really is enough. It doesn't cut it because deep down in our bones, we can feel that something else is at play here. Kyoto, Japan, uh, it's a really beautiful city. Like it has so much tradition, it has amazing architecture, incredible food. But it also has a lot, a lot of religious temples and shrines, like the one you see there. In Veritas, we take a trip to Japan each summer. And when we do, we spend a couple of days in Kyoto, and we explore some of these temples. And one of the ones that we go to is called Sanju Sangendo. And it's this huge, massive building that is full of over a thousand golden statues, most of which are the goddess, the Buddhist goddess, canon. And when you walk into this building, I, I don't know how else to describe it. When you walk in, there's just like this notable shift in the atmosphere. Like it's intentionally dark in there so that the idols, these statues, they stand out. And there's like a heaviness in the air. It's kind of stuffy because they're burning incense. And you're not allowed to talk. It's very quiet in there so that you don't disturb these guardian deities that are in there. And all you can see for as far as you can see is row after row after row of statues raised up on platforms looking down at you. Some of them with like super angry eyes and weapons. It's, it's kind of spooky. But what you also see as you're walking through looking at these statues is you're seeing people kneeling down, praying to them. You see people dropping offerings, coins into boxes, writing out messages to these deities. And it's tempting. Like it's tempting as you're watching it to think that all these people are doing, everything that they're doing, that it's all fake, that none of it is real, that these statues are just metal and wood, that's all. But I'm telling you, there's a feeling in the room. There is a darkness, a a heaviness, that it doesn't just come from the low lighting or the incense. I don't know, man, there's something darker there. There's something that feels a little bit more oppressive, almost sinister. I don't know how else to describe it. And it's super strange. It's really weird as a, as a foreigner, a Westerner, and especially personally as somebody who just doesn't really buy into a lot of that uh, spiritual forces stuff very often. It is weird to walk in and feel those things. And maybe you're listening to me and you, you're kind of thinking that I'm over-spiritualizing a little bit. The, the feelings that I have when I walk into that room, maybe it's just kind of in my head. And, and I hear you. But I don't know, there's something odd going on in that room. And I think in general, our culture here in America, I think we're pretty quick to disregard the the possibility, the idea that spiritual forces exist, good and bad exist and are in our world. But I think there's danger to that. I think there's danger to ignoring the possibility just the idea of the presence of spiritual forces in our world, because when we do that, if we ignore it, we're completely clueless to any impact they could have, any influence that they might have in the world. We got no idea. Like if we ignore the possibility, then we're just blind to any effect, any power that they could potentially hold in our lives. And that, that sounds like kind of a bad spot, for me at least. I think that sounds like a bad spot for us to be in. So we can't really ignore this topic. We can't really ignore it. There's too much at stake. We don't get to say, I don't know, it's kind of confusing. It's really weird. I don't want to talk about it. It's uncomfortable. It's too abstract. Let's just let it go. I don't think we can do that because if, if there are spiritual forces happening around us in the world, then it matters what we think about them. Okay, but, but what does that have to do at all with what we're going through on Tuesday nights in our series? Because Kate, she just talked about a minute ago how we are going through a series on God's name, Yahweh. And we talked about how we're going through a passage in Exodus where God gives us his name. We talked about all of that. We, we talked last week, if you were here, we talked about how Yahweh, it comes from the Hebrew translation of the words, I am who I am. And that's the name that God gave to Moses in Exodus 3 and told him to call Yahweh. And it translates, in Hebrew, it translates Y-H-W-H, which we pronounce Yahweh. So last week, Kyle kicked us off. He, he kicked us off by introducing us to this Yahweh. And last week, that's all we had time to get through. One word, the first word. Because the fact that God, the fact that he reveals his name to us, it actually tells us a lot about who he is. It tells us that Yahweh is personal. He he wants us to know who he is. He wants to be in relationship with us. So that was last week. And this week, we're just going to continue on. We're going to keep reading through. So let's reread. Let's go again and reread Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. Here's what they say. Then Yahweh came down in the cloud and stood there with him, with Moses, and proclaimed his name, Yahweh, And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Okay, let's go back. It says Yahweh, Yahweh. Right off the bat, God gives his name and he says it twice in a row. The first thing he does is proclaim his name two times. So last week, Kyle, he went through, he talked about Yahweh, right? So this week, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about, get this, Yahweh, which you think would make my job really, really easy tonight. Like maybe he covered it last week, you know? He did a pretty good job. So maybe. I don't know, maybe we're done here, right? Maybe we can all go home. Or maybe, maybe Yahweh is actually repeating himself for a reason. Maybe he wants to get our attention. Maybe Yahweh repeats his name twice because he wants to distinguish his name from all other names out there. See, Yahweh, like Kate said, Yahweh isn't just God. That name God alone it it, it doesn't do it. It's not enough. And it's not enough because believe it or not, he's not the only God. There are other gods out there. Now, if you didn't think that I was like a little bit off my rocker earlier with the Japanese temple stuff, you might definitely think I am now. Like you might be sitting here and being like, oh no, this lady is saying that there's other gods. And I think that's a no-no for Christianity. Like I don't think she can do that. So is, gonna, is somebody gonna stop her? Is she's kind of going rogue, what should we do? And if that's you, I get it, I understand. But hear me out, hear me for just a second. Because for our modern minds, as we read that, as we hear about the existence of other gods, that could, that could come as an absolute shock to us. But for the people, the ancient Israelites, the people who were around when the Bible was being recorded, this wouldn't be all that surprising. Because the Bible, it mentions other gods all the time. It does. Like, like here's an example. We're going to read Psalm 82. Here's how it goes. God pres- presides in the great assembly. We're going to talk about what that is in a second. He renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, Yahweh said, you are gods. You are all sons of the most high, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Okay, we're going to unpack a lot of what we just read. But unfortunately, there's a lot more that we're not going to be able to get to tonight. But first, I just wanna say, this example is one of many good examples of times where the Bible mentions these lowercase gods. And if you haven't noticed it before, that's okay. I honestly hadn't either. But as you start to look for it, as you're reading your Bible, you're gonna start to see these lowercase gods are mentioned often. It's kind of like, I don't know if you guys had to do this, but in public speaking class, if you've had to do a speech, but then you've also had to record it and then watch it back to see how many times you said things like, um, like, so, and. And it's one of those things where if you didn't notice it, you do now, and you realize, oh my gosh, I've said it all the time. It's kind of like that when we read our Bible with a different lens. So, so if that's the case, if there's a possibility that these gods are real, that they exist, then the question that we have to ask ourselves are, what are they? Like, what are these gods? The problem with that, though, is there is literally no possible way for me to adequately describe the, the spiritual realm or, or these gods tonight. I can't do it. It's, there's just too much. Like there is a guy, there's a guy named Michael Heiser, and he wrote a book called Unseen Realm, but it took him 15 years to research and write it out. So that's just going to give you a little context, okay, about what we're waiting into. So we're not going to get all that far tonight, but for just a couple minutes, I want to talk to you about what these gods are and, and what they're not. And it might It might be a lot, but I want to use a fair amount of Bible verses. It might be like drinking from a fire hose, but I want to do that so that it doesn't just sound like I'm up here spouting my own theories, okay? You don't want that, I don't want that. So we're going to look at uh, quite a few Bible verses in the next couple of minutes, okay? Here we go. Bless you. Okay, first, what are the gods? One, they are spiritual beings. And maybe that goes without being said, But Elohim, the Hebrew word for gods, is like a term for, it's not a name, it's a category of being. And these are beings who live in the spiritual realm. John Mark Comer, he's an author, and he says it, that they are, how does he say it? Invisible but real spiritual creatures. Invisible but real spiritual creatures. In Ephesians 6, 11 and 12, that's what this is talking about. It tells us to put on the full armor of God. Why? Well, because we're not fighting against flesh and blood, like the physical world. No, no, no. We are fighting against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Okay, so they're spiritual beings. But second, they are powerful. They are active in our world. So they have been given some sort of authority and, and influence. They, they have a way of being a part of the world. So if you look at, back at Psalm 82, we, we see that they are supposed to rule with justice and mercy, but what they have done is they have shaken the foundations of the earth. And what that means, what that means is they have taken God's good design for the world and they have distorted it and disrupted it and disturbed it. They are wreaking havoc in the world. So if you remember, we just talked about all those things that feel not quite right with the world, like your loneliness or the sickness that took someone from you or the wars, the violence that we see. There are spiritual forces that are a part of our world, active and working to disrupt God's good order. So they are powerful. They have some authority, but they are, three, against God. They are against him. So going back to Psalm 82 one more time, we see that Yahweh, he is in the great assembly. It talks about that, which just imagine, that's kind of like a... uh, a spiritual council room, like in a a European kingdom, let's say. And it could kind of look like uh, this is King Henry VIII, and this is a painting of him in his council room, in his throne room, and he's got his advisors, his counselors around him. So it's kind of like that. But instead of King Henry VIII, you have Yahweh in his throne room among the gods. And what he's doing is he is judging them. He's judging them for their rebellion and their sin. So we know, here's what we know, okay? Recap. They are spiritual beings, they're powerful, and they are against Yahweh. That's what we know that they are, but what, what are they not? What aren't the gods? Well, they're not eternal, okay? The Bible is really clear that only Yahweh is the God outside of time. So Genesis 1, 1 and 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6, they talk about, they name God as the only creator of the heavens and earth, which means that God is the one to create those gods. Yahweh creates those gods. But back in Psalm 82, he's also the one we see that will end them, will destroy them for their rebellion someday. So they're not eternal, but they're also not, number two, fake or false or imaginary. Paul, if we go back to 1 Corinthians 8, he says, yeah, indeed, there are other gods in heaven and on earth. So he's acknowledging their presence. He's acknowledging their existence. And maybe you're sitting here and you're like, gosh, I am really confused because I could have sworn that there were verses in the Bible that talk about the fact that there is no other God, like that God is the only true God, to which I would say for sure, that is totally in the Bible. So we get verses like Isaiah 45, 5, where Yahweh himself says, I am Yahweh. There's no other. Apart from me, there's no God, except He's not quite calling those other gods imaginary or fake. He's saying that there's no one like him. Uh, Apart from him, no other creature, no other being comes close. So they are not fake, but most importantly, and finally, they are also not comparable to Yahweh. this, This is all over, all over scripture, okay? So here we go, three verses, just a a quick smattering. There's so many more, but Psalm 89, six to seven says, for who in the skies above can compare with Yahweh? Who is like Yahweh among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, in the spiritual realm, spiritual beings, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. First Kings, 8.23, Yahweh, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. Jeremiah 10.6, no one is like you, Yahweh. You are great and your name is mighty in power. So plain and simple, there is no comparison. No other God, no spiritual being could ever rival Yahweh. He, he is the one who is incomparable. He has no equal. He has no rival, no parallel. He is the one who is unrivaled forever. But if that's the case, then why does he have to repeat himself? Like, why is it even a comparison in the first place if he is incomparable and undefeated and unrivaled? And why, why does it say in the first place of the 10 commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Like, why is it even a competition? Why are we even talking about that? Why does he need to do that? Well, because in the Bible, the, his people, the Israelites, they again and again and again and again, it's such a sad story. They turn to other gods. They worship other gods. And a lot of times it happens through those idols. So we, we looked at idols. We saw in Sanju Sangendo those idols, those statues. But idols could be really anything. It could be like a little figurine, a charm. It could be made out of wood or stone or metal. These are some of the idols that people have found from the ancient Near East in biblical times. These are just examples. And an idol was something that people would pray to, they would ask for blessing from. And so the idol itself, it didn't have any power in and of itself, right? But what it did do is it gave spiritual forces access into people's lives. It acted as like a, a conduit, a doorway for spiritual forces to have power and influence in people's lives. So today, here in the States, like you and I, I don't, I don't know many people, I don't know anybody maybe, that worships literal physical idols. We don't really do that here, but what we do is we replace those physical idols with things like power, status, wealth, Kate mentioned all these examples of things, relationships, our health, travel, experiences, you name it, we have found ways to make things into idols. And a lot of the time, I think when we talk about idols like in Christian circles, like the, the way that they're described is anything that you love more than Yahweh. Because like anything that you desire or want more than Yahweh. And I think that is true. I think that is a way to talk about idols. But more than just something we love, I think we're talking about what we trust. Like idols are something that we put our trust in, our hope in to fix all of those wrongs that we see in the world, to make all things right in our life. We say, if I just had blank, then everything would be fixed. Everything would be right. And so, like, for example, the idol of money, what it does is it promises you that if you just have enough wealth, then you're never going to lack. You'll never fear not having enough. Or the idol of a relationship, it says, hey, if you can just be with someone, as long as you're with someone, you will never feel lonely. You'll never feel unworthy ever again. Or the idol of Health, it says, hey, you can control your body. You can control your health and you can avoid sickness and disease and maybe even death forever. See, when we idolize things of this world, we are trusting that those things will take away everything wrong, everything bad. It will fix our life. But when we do that, when we trust in something other than Yahweh, what we are doing is we are giving spiritual forces access into our lives, and I promise you, they're going to wreak havoc. They will wreak havoc. And he write uh, an author, he warns us about this. He says it this way. I like the way he says it. He says, when we humans commit idolatry, worshiping that which is not God as if it were, we thereby give to other creatures and beings in the cosmos, in the universe, a power, a prestige, an authority over us in which we, under God, we're supposed to have over them. So, so what are you worshiping? Hey, what are you putting your trust in? What idols have you given yourself to? If you're not quite sure, as the music team comes back up, let's just try to answer a couple questions, okay? Here they are. First, where do you spend the most time, energy, and money in your week? Maybe those things aren't idols. I'm not saying those things are inherently bad things to spend time, money, energy on, but just evaluate and ask yourself, What does that reveal about what I trust? What I put my trust in? Two, what are some of the biggest fears you have and what do you do to avoid them? How do you avoid? What lengths do you go to to avoid some of your greatest fears? Next slide. When you feel out of control, when you feel anxious about something, when you feel stuck in a problem, What do you turn to for things like comfort or escape? Last, what would hurt the most if you lost it? Like what can you not imagine losing in your life? See, the answers to those questions, I'm not sure, I'm not saying each and every one of them is an idol in your life, but it could potentially be the thing that you are placing your trust in to make everything right, the thing that you think will solve all your problems, make everything good. I just wanna remind you, I just wanna remind you the reality is that there is only one who can make all things right. There's only one incomparable, undefeated, unrivaled God who is worthy of our trust and our worship. And his name is Yahweh. Rather, rather than us putting our trust in the things of this world, rather than making room for spiritual forces to have access to us, power, influence in our lives, rather than all of that, let's put our trust in the one who promises that he is coming back to restore all things to what is right and good in this world. See, I don't know what you're facing I don't know like what grief or pain or trial that you're going through right now, but I wanna remind you, Yahweh, he is with you. And he is the name that stands above all other names. Amen.